But I do want to welcome you, whether you are here in person or you are online, we are honored that you would come on your weekend to worship with us. And uh, that was definitely worth it. That was worth showing up for. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you, team. And uh, I am preaching a word tonight called, Won't You Be a Neighbor? And if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, because we'll be parking it there throughout the sermon. But happy Super Bowl weekend for those who celebrate. Do we have any, like, 49ers or Chiefs fans that are, like, under the radar? I don't know of any. I'm excited nonetheless, though. I do celebrate the Super Bowl. I do uh, give myself the time and energy to focus on football. It's like, I don't have a lot of bandwidth for stuff, but I enjoy, I enjoy some football. But I'm not going to lie. I had my perspective just rocked this week, and I, and I was reeling uh, just because I've always pictured NFL players as like this paragon of manliness and toughness and strength, right? And so this week, a story comes out that the Niners, they're in their hotel in Las Vegas, and the fire alarm went off when they were resting. And so like they get to interviewing the players and CMC, he's like the Christian McCaffrey, the face of the offense. He's lamenting that this fire alarm went off and like how much it bothered them and like, oh, this is going to be fuel for our fire. And then Nick Bosa, the face of their defense is like, yeah, it was terrible. Like this, this fire alarm went off while we were trying to rest. And then there was a DB, a defensive back talking about how they were uh, sluggish in practice and they had heavy eyes. And I'm thinking, man, this alarm must have gone off at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., like middle of the night when everybody's deep in their REM sleep and like just totally derailed their evening, or their night, I should say. And you know that this thing went off after 6 a.m. I'm like, if you know and love Chuck Jordan, like we know and love Chuck Jordan, he's eating lunch by then. And you quickly realize these, these men are young men. They're largely in their 20s, and they don't have kids. Like, I had an alarm go off this morning called Raj. He came in our bedroom at 2.45 and never went back to sleep. If my sermon goes off the rails, I blame him. But I'm thinking, like, that derails your entire day, waking up at 6 a.m.? And I begin to ask myself, am I tougher than, like, 6'4", 270-pound Nick Bosa? Don't at him on Twitter saying I just said I'm, I'm still, like, does that make me, I don't, I don't know. They're not about that life, parents. They're not about that life. And Raj comes in at 2.45 and he's singing, right? I can't even be mad. He's singing like it's his new phase. He, he just sings. He's got this little voice. It's, I hope it never drops. When it drops, I'm going to go into like a period of mourning. Be up to the altar every week. But it's so sweet. There's like this little falsetto and we don't even understand what he's singing half the time. And I, you can't get, I'm like, dude, just sing away. I'm just going to lay here. and <laughs> Keep singing. But I've realized, right, when, when Steph and I first got married, she was like, you have a hip-hop reference for every circumstance in life that can just lighten the mood or, you know, make, make some kind of analogy or allegory from a hip-hop reference. And I've realized recently in recent years that that soundtrack in my head of, like, 90s hip-hop has been uh, ejected, replaced by, like, Raj's stuff he listens to, Moana soundtrack, uh, what we got, Coco Melon, Baby Bum, Super simple songs, kids one, two, three, and literally I'm walking back from the bathroom to my office a couple weeks ago, I catch myself singing an ABC song out loud from one of these hour-long videos that Raj watches every day. It's my lot in life, I've accepted it, I love it, I'm a dad, best thing to ever happen to me besides marrying my Valentine right there, Steph. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a father of a child with multiple special needs. I'm a, a husband of a beautiful wife that has a health condition that has needs, lots of needs. And uh, 
So I'm not just a dad, I'm a, I'm a caregiver. And there's this Daniel Tiger song where it says, taking care of you makes me happy too. And I, I probably say that to Raj like every single day, whether I'm giving him his bath or I'm lotioning him up after the bath or hanging with him for an hour over dinner. And I'll just tell him, hey, taking care of you makes me happy too because I love you. And some of you who are parents, you probably just heard that with, like, with the melody. Or when I mentioned Daniel Tiger, you, you hear some other song about uh, uh, grown-ups come back or, or saying thank you because Daniel Tiger has all these little ditties where it helps the kids, you know, learn the lesson of the episode through a little hook, a little song. And others of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. No idea who Daniel Tiger is. Like, I, I assumed one of my old college roommates knew about Daniel Tiger. He became a father. I'm like, does he watch Daniel Tiger yet? And he's like, I don't know what that is. So, yeah, like the Niners players, they, they ain't about that life yet. But Daniel Tiger's popular. Like, Raj used to watch... Tiger Family Trip, which he called Kiker Kemke Kip. That's how he would ask for it. <laughs> He'd watch that every night. Now he's hooked on season one, episode 14, over and over and over again. But it's, it's popular, but it's nothing like what it's based on, which is Mr. Rogers. Give it up for Mr. Rogers. <laughs> but yeah, because Daniel Tiger's popular, Kids love it, but Mr. Rogers was prolific. He had over 900 episodes that aired from 1968 all the way to 2001. I didn't realize until I was studying it, like that's how long this man was doing his thing. He became an icon. We don't often remember him as, as such because of this, but he was first a minister. He was a, a Presbyterian minister, ordained long before he became a TV figure. And I love the story because he actually got involved with TV because he, he hated TV. Every time he turned the TV on, he said he saw people demeaning one another. And he said, if there's anything that bothers me, it's one person demeaning another. And I think he gives such this, this beautiful picture of what it looks like to engage the culture, as broken as it might be. Like not to, he didn't go to war with it. He didn't bunker down from it. He embraced it. He went on TV for decades and, and just distributed this message of grace. He was given a special ordination, it's cool, by a local branch of his denomination to serve children and families through television, to be an evangelist to children, and he did just that. Like, he taught about emotions and, and empathy, and he, he taught both kids and parents alike that you have worth and you're worthy of love and you have value, and those people around you, which was big in this time in the 60s, regardless of their skin color, regardless of the way they worship, they're also worthy of love. I love that... Uh, Apparently, I've never been, but in his office, he had the Greek word for grace framed because he wanted this reminder that through the show, he wanted to broadcast grace. And apparently before entering his office to film each day, he would pray, dear God, let some word that is heard be yours. And I love that he didn't just ask, but he acted on this prayer. Like that's another sermon for another day, but he literally would meet with a whole team of child psychologists before each episode to go over the script to, to see how it would best impact a child's cognitive and emotional development. Like, he was serious about his business. But you know the most iconic phrase or, or line from any of his scriptures comes from the opening song, could you be mine, would you be mine, won't you be my neighbor? Now, the, the dictionary definition of neighbor is pretty simple. A person near or next door to the person speaking. So like when pastor like, touch your neighbor, it's the person next to him, right? <laughs> So we see that the common definition is determined by nearness, proximity. And I can't emphasize enough, it's why we intro with this, 
is, is God's people, we as God's people, how we define neighbor is crucial. Like when one of the greatest commandments we're given is to love our neighbor, we better define neighbor right. See, Jesus points to our neighbor, again, as part of the two greatest commandments, and they both come from the Old Testament. The first is Deuteronomy 6.5, a portion of the law that the Jews recited daily, which says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And then the second one that he points to is Leviticus 19.18, which says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Again, we see that neighbor here in Leviticus, it's synonymous with a fellow Israelite, somebody in your community, your people. It falls in line with what we'd see in our dictionaries. It's not far from the etymology of the word we have, which comes from nigh, meaning near, and however you pronounce G-E-B-U-R, which means to dwell. In both instances, neighbor is defined by proximity, sharing a picket fence, geography, nearness. And this was the script that they operated from when Jesus was teaching. And honestly, it's the script that a lot of us might operate from day to day when we think about loving our neighbors. But I love that you see twice in Luke's gospel moments where Jesus is like riding a wave of popularity. And then he challenges our definition of neighbor. The first one's in Luke 4. Jesus is at like his home church in Nazareth and he gets up and he reads Isaiah 61, right? About bringing uh, justice and, and freedom for the captives and everybody is super excited. I want to crown him right there. Then moments later, he basically says that his ministry, like Elijah and Elisha's, was going to be to the Gentiles just as much as it is to the Jews. And this angered them so much it said they wanted to throw him off the cliff that neighbored the church. Like they wanted to kill Jesus because they were so triggered by his redefining of who their neighbors were that they were called to love. But that's another sermon for another time. I want to dig into Luke 10, the other instance in Luke's gospel. We see the same thing happen. And it's one you maybe have heard of, one you've maybe read before, but let's dive into it. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it starts in verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. God, we pray. We echo those words of of Mr. Rogers tonight. Let something that is said, Lord, something that is heard tonight be you, Holy Spirit. God, we come, we gather, we come, we worship, but, but teach us tonight to go and do likewise. Show us what that looks like so that we can be 
the good neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, here we see Jesus riding this wave of popularity, approached from the crowd by a man who was like an expert on the Bible, an expert on the Torah, an expert on biblical law. He's a scholar. He, he wins all his debates. He's got all the passages memorized. And he asks a legitimately good question. Like, I, I want to know the answer to this question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he often did in his ministry, he responded to a question with a question. He's tricky that way. He looks at the expert in the law and he appeals to his expertise and he says, what does the law say? And the expert in the law responds with the text we open looking at, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And Jesus says, you got it, you nailed it, right? So this guy could have walked away, head high, patting himself on the back rather than with his foot in his mouth. But it says he wanted to justify himself. And he asks, well, who is my neighbor? And he probably expected Jesus to reply with notes from Leviticus 19, implying that there are neighbors and there are non-neighbors. There's the community of fellow Israelites that the verse states, and then there's Gentiles. You ain't got to worry about. But ultimately, Jesus' answer gives him way more than he bargained for. And, you know, side note, we, we too get in trouble when we seek to justify ourselves. Because this lawyer thinks, as we often do in our culture, that if I just do, what can I do? We do enough then I'll, I'll be able to achieve right standing with God, right? I can justify myself. But the good news of the gospel is we're saved by grace alone, right? I don't justify myself. You don't justify yourself. Jesus does. Jesus did on the cross. So standing justified before God, it's not even in my hands. It's in Jesus' hands, secure hands. But Jesus doesn't go straight for the jugular as this man seeks to justify himself like he could have. Rather, he uses a parable of this man who was beaten within an inch of his life by these robbers and the good Samaritan that saves his life. Now, again, many of us no doubt have heard this parable before, but to understand it fully, you have to fully understand who the Samaritans were. And the Samaritans as a people date back to the 8th century BC when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria and exiled its people. And they left behind the poorest of the poor of the Israelites with the people that would colonize it from Assyria and the tribes that were around there. And so these people, people intermingled ethnically and religiously with those tribes, and was, they were considered by the Jews as half-breeds, right, beneath them. And the stuff that they believed about each other was wild. Based on this history, in Jewish teaching, it said that to eat the bread of a Samaritan is akin to eating swine or eating pig, which was un unclean. But bread, couldn't even touch their bread. It gets crazier. <laughs> it gets so ugly that the Jews would actually pray in synagogue ceremonies that God would not show grace or mercy to the Samaritans. There's a tradition that says at one point, 300 priests and 300 rabbis once came together in the temple courts of Jerusalem, not for a cool revival, big tent revival or, or cool conference, but to curse the Samaritans with all the curses of the law of Moses. And to be fair, this went both ways. There was no love lost. They believed horrible dehumanizing characterizations of each other, which sometimes we do in our culture, right? All Samaritans are fill in the blank. All, all Jews are fill in the blank. In our culture, especially this year, all conservatives are fill in the blank. All, all progressives or liberals are fill in the blank, right? All immigrants are fill in the blank. All pro-lifers are fill in the blank. It'll get even louder this year. But Jesus, right, addressing this, this tribal, hate-filled divide between Jews and Samaritans, calls us in this text, as he always does, to see beyond the broken, cardboard, cut-out character 
that we have of people that may, maybe are different than us, that we use to just distance ourselves from them rather than love them. And Jesus' ultimate answer in this text is so crucial because for the expert in the law, his question treated the idea of a neighbor as something to act upon, which when you read Leviticus 19 seems like a, a legitimate uh, conclusion because we're called to love the neighbor, the object of our love. So it seemingly begged the question, okay, who is my neighbor and who is my non-neighbor? But Jesus flips the question. Again, he asks a new question. Which one of these three was a neighbor? And you know what's notable in the text is, the, is the, the expert in the law who had grown up amidst this Jewish nationalism and even racism towards Samaritans couldn't get himself to say the word Samaritan. It probably would have blown his mind to say the, the word detours, good Samaritan side by side. All he can muster up in the moment is the one who showed him mercy. See, the expert in the law tried to judge and assess, okay, who is my neighbor? Who do I actually have to love? And the better question Jesus gives him and he would give us tonight is, am I a neighbor who shows mercy to those in need? See, we love scripture as a, a magnifying glass and a microscope to stand over others and make assessments, to stand and ask questions like, well, is this my neighbor? <laughs> is this need valid? Should they even be lamenting? Should they even be upset? Was this trouble earned? Is it my problem? Should I care? We, like the expert in the law, we want to justify ourselves. But Jesus takes the question about the word neighbor and he flips it like a mirror. Jesus says, get off your high horse and assess yourself. He takes that question and makes it reflective. Rather than assessing who is your neighbor, he asks, are you neighborly? The implication, let the neighbor be you. Mr. Rogers was on to something when he asked the question, won't you be my neighbor? It echoes the one Jesus poses here. Will you be neighborly to those in need? See, the implication tonight is that the command to love my neighbor, to be a good neighbor, it's ultimately about my identity, not theirs. Right? It's about my heart, not what they look like, vote like, worship like, talk like, behave like. No, I'm called to love my neighbor, and that's on me. You see, when we adopted Raj, our now eight-year-old son from India, oh my right, <laughs> I had a lot of conversations along the way. This is like over a decade ago, but I can still remember the faces. I can still remember the conversations where we had started this international adoption process. Long story, we started with Ethiopia. <laughs> That's another story for another time, but we would tell people we're adopting internationally and most people are awesome. Occasionally you get people who are like, well, why don't you adopt from your own? Or why don't you take care of kids who need help here in America? And I'd like to say they all got like a, a smile and a polite reply. Most of them did. Most of them did. But what I made sure they heard is that the love that Christ gives me for people, it's not defined by proximity, but by humanity. Not by nearness, but, but need. And there are some serious needs in the world. I don't know if you know. But when it comes to my love, you can take man-made borders, politics, this soil, that soil, kick rocks. Because Jesus teaches that a neighbor is, is not just defined by proximity, but humanity. And if it's defined by humanity, then ethnicity doesn't matter. If it's defined by humanity, then nationality doesn't matter. If it's defined by humanity, then, then religion doesn't matter. You're responsible to love your neighbor, the end. <laughs> but again, in that culture, to the expert in religious law, the Samaritan was a, a non-neighbor. And the religious Jew was only concerned largely with other Jews. No doubt at that time they might say things like, well, we got our hands full with our own problems. But seriously... The ancient Jewish book of wisdom, Sirach, explicitly says in chapter 12, to not help a sinner like a Samaritan. 
And I quote, they didn't just say, don't worry about loving Samaritans. They said, do not help a sinner like a Samaritan. But Jesus throws a flag and reminds us, hey, people have value before they ever have virtue, right? Sinner or not. And we can get caught up about questions about who were required to help, whether they earned it, deserve it. What will it cost me? The priest in this parable had legitimate reasons not to help. Like if this was a dead body, he'd become ritually unclean. And he would be put out of the time and the money it would have taken to, to, to pay for this, the ritual sacrifice it would have took to become clean again. But we'll never know the reason. We'll never know the excuses of these guys because Jesus doesn't give it when he tells the story. His point is any excuse is irrelevant as they were actively choosing not to love their neighbor. The priest also could have said, well, it's his fault for traveling this, this dangerous road alone. This road that Jesus talks about from, from Jerusalem to Jericho and back is a real one. It's well-traveled, but it was also dangerous. 17 miles, and there's actually one stretch of this road that was called the Pass of Blood because it was known for robbers and danger. And this man was apparently on it alone, perhaps at a time it wasn't well-traveled. So they could have said, well, he put himself in this situation. It's his fault, consequences that he has to deal with himself. But Jesus doesn't ask, was this neighbor worthy of helping? He asks, who was the neighbor to the one in need? And the answer is the one who showed mercy. Now the application for the recipient of the parable then, and as we receive it tonight, is okay, go and do likewise. Be a neighbor. The world asks, won't you be my neighbor? Be one. And there are two things that, that keep us from being a, a, a good neighbor or neighboring well that I want to just look at briefly tonight because they hold us back. And the first is simply ethics in abstract. Jesus is adept here as he is throughout his ministry, talking about abstract questions or ideas and, and giving them real life applications. We should take special note in our day and age, especially the digital age when on social media we have this ability to reflect on situations, comment on situations, throw up a hashtag, and then walk away and largely forget about it. Even with, with church, in a way, you can come in or, or log in and, and you receive and then you, you log off mentally when you walk out and it never affects our Monday through Friday. There are plenty of Christians going to church that are like the religious leader in this story. We've got the latest Christian bestseller on our coffee table. We've got the latest worship album playing on our Alexa. <laughs> we got the, the, the theology and, and we can debate doctrine. We got the mental ascent, but there's no go and do. Right? We talk about issues in abstract, but we never get our hands dirty. And it's why sometimes, not all, sometimes, religious people can make the worst neighbors. Because we're the priest or the Levite in this parable. We feel like we got the expertise down. We've got the head knowledge, but it stops at the neck. We never get to be in hands and feet. And mental ascent, Fred's talked about this so many times. It's, that's not the end game. It's just mental ascent. It's not how we fulfill the call to love God and love our neighbor. Love is. And the fact that God commands us to love shows that love isn't abstract. It's something we do, right? It's not merely a feeling we passively fall into or God couldn't hold us accountable for whether we love or not. Love is not passive and abstract. It's go and do. And a necessary aside, again, when we talk about go and do, we don't do in order to, to earn favor with God or anything like that. Ephesians 2, right, 8 and 9 says, we're not saved by works so no man can boast. We're saved by grace and grace alone. But we see in verse 10, why? To do the work of loving our neighbor, loving God and loving neighbor. But too often we don't get to that because, 
Another trouble in our day and age is it's so easy to be numbed by suffering. It's what gives us like neighbor paralysis is, is when your definition of neighbor is elevated from proximity to humanity. I don't know if you've noticed, but humanity has a lot of issues. Our global neighborhood is a hot mess. It can seem overwhelming. And I heard one professor of philosophy say recently, that, or he spoke recently on what he called commencement speech morality. If you've ever been to a commencement speech, you know, these are like the general themes that the world is full of problems, full of injustices and full of people that need help. And you have the spark and you have the energy to go out and change and save the world and make a name for yourself by solving these problems, doing the most good you can do and the bigger, the better. The rough outline for a lot of commencement speeches. But ultimately, this is like a newer cultural development. Not until recently did we have the technology to know about all these issues, all these problems all over the world. Social media and media in general has, has elevated our exposure to these issues. And every day it seems like there's a new tragedy that we should be concerned about, outraged about, or, or fear. And psychologists have noted a stress that builds up as we hear about all these things. It's what they've termed media saturation overload or technically headline stress disorder. 73% of Americans just last year reported stress and feeling overwhelmed with the issues facing the world they live in. And it undercuts our mental health, and then every five minutes there's a new headline. And our mental health isn't the only cost. It cripples our ability to be a good neighbor because awareness is a good thing. But when we take in crisis after crisis, suffering after suffering, we can become desensitized. We can become numb. And in that numbness, we can lose our compassion. See, the reality is we weren't created to have all of the world's problems dropped on our proverbial doorstep all the time. Like, imagine for a moment, you don't have any technology, no phone, no news to watch. What are the things that would weigh on you and the concerns you would have? That's what you were created for, right? The awareness is good, but man, psychology would tell you you're not called to carry the weight of the world. Think about it. In Jesus' day, when he's telling these parables, a lot of the people he was talking to weren't going to go more than a few dozen miles from their, their home in their lifetime. And my point of all this is, is while our definition of neighbor can sometimes be too small, right, defined by sharing a fence or people in our neighborhood, it's too small because it needs to extend to humanity. When it comes to being a neighbor, sometimes we can think so big we become paralyzed or numb. When it comes to our, our sense of responsibility for being a good neighbor, sometimes we got to actually shrink it. Seems counterintuitive, but only God is omnipresent. Only God is omnipotent. And to attempt to be like God is going to cause anxiety and numbness. And you might be like, well, what do you mean? Shouldn't we be upping the responsibility, upping our, our aim? But that's what our utilitarian culture and commencement speech morality would tell us. But we see in Jesus' teaching of the Good Samaritan, the first two passerbys in the story weren't condemned because they simply didn't bring aid to another human, but because they were in the flesh, eye to eye, with a need and able to help, and they did nothing. See, when it comes to being a neighbor, proximity and ability become key. Their responsibility was due to their proximity and ability to help this need, and they just passed on by. We daily live within proximity and with the ability to help needs that are around us. And if we adopt a lens for, for seeing the world around us with one lens of proximity and one lens of ability, we'll have less anxiety and be able to live more neighborly. 
Because life can be absolutely overwhelming when tragedy or disaster strike. There's this Mr. Rogers quote that you'll see often after tragic events where he says, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words and I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. It's such a beautiful reminder as we will face tragedies and disasters in life, but there's still beauty to be found in the people who help. But we should also remember in this quote, Mr. Rogers is speaking to children. Children don't have agency. Children can't up and be like, you know what, tomorrow at noon, I'm gonna go serve at the local food pantry. Or you know what, there was this disaster nearby. I'm gonna go drive over and, and help work through the rubble. Like children can't just up and do those things. They don't have agency. We do. <laughs> we don't have to just look for helpers. We can be a helper. But what does that take? It takes compassion. The Samaritan came along, and I love what it says in the Amplified Translation. He was deeply moved with compassion for him. And the definition for compassion is key because like love, it's not just some fleeting, passive emotion. It's to have such a strong empathy for somebody in their situation that it hurts your spirit, hurts your gut. The Greek word for compassion comes from the same word as spleen. Like you're supposed to feel it in your gut. Compassion is the opposite of numbness. It moves us deeply and literally. It causes us to act, which is, again, why this constant exposure to suffering and the numbness that follows is dangerous. Because to be numb to the needs of our neighbors can also mean that we're numb to Christ. Like we say a song tonight, I want to be where you are. We sing songs like, I just want to sit here at your feet. In Matthew 25, Jesus himself said, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. If you want to be close to Christ, bring the needs of humanity into your proximity. Go and do, regardless of ethnicity or race or creed. To see the, the world as a Christian is to see Christ, the Imago Dei, in everyone. Seven years ago, this month, we brought Raj home from India. 8,000 miles away in India. So there was no proximity there. <laughs> Literally the opposite end of the globe. But we had the faith that we somehow would have the ability to raise the money, do all the paperwork. But you might ask, like, the ability for what? There's t up to, estimated, 20 million orphans in India. To adopt one and say, you made a difference, feels like you're, you're taking a bucket of water out of, like, Noah's flood, and you're saying, I got this. But I think of, of Henry Nguyen. I think it's Henri, if I want to be official, but I'm calling him Henry. The call on his life and how he was a neighbor to a man named Adam. His writing has been impactful since like the early days of my walk. I, I read this, I knew it was early on, and then I see this little piece of paper today, and it's the receipt. It was from uh, November of 2007 that I bought and read this book. It's just about connecting with God through prayer and silence and solitude. Short read, but it was profound for me. And then I read last year this book called Adam, God's Beloved. And as the cover says, he shares the spiritual lessons he learned from a profoundly disabled young man. It's the last book he wrote before he passed in 1996, and I'm glad he did because it impacted my heart. I was talking to Steph like a week ago, and I was like, man, I know I've read books and cried because she just read a, a work of fiction, and she was like, I was in tears, and I was like, I've done that before. I know I've done it. I couldn't think of any books, but looking at that this week, I was like, yep, this was one. See, he was a renowned Dutch author, priest, he was a professor who served in universities both in Holland and in the U.S. for 20 years. But towards the end of his life, as like an extended sabbatical of sorts, he, he withdrew from the university, 
moved into the basement of a special care home, and he was given the care of, of a severely disabled man who was about half his age. And he started out overwhelmed, but after some time, he found his groove. And then after some time, a professor from the university came to visit him. And in the book, Henry Newman tells the story of that interaction because this professor, no doubt, again, had heard these commencement speeches with their charges to change the world. And after he had visited for some time, he, he, he all but rebuked Henry. And he said, is this where you're spending your time? Did you leave the university where you were such an inspiration to so many people to give your time and energy to Adam? You aren't even trained for this. Why don't you leave this work to those who are trained for it? Surely you have better things to do with your time. This sounds like what maybe the priest or Levite might have been muttering under, they, under their breath as they passed that victim. I got people to inspire. I got a lot of people counting on me. I got better things to do with my time. Again, it's a utilitarian perspective with utilitarian values. Why should a severely disabled person be allowed to take time and energy that could be spent impacting and changing the world? But Henry confessed in this book that Adam gave him, and I quote, a complete reversal of values. He writes the great paradoxes of the gospel, that the last will be first, that those who lose their lives will gain them, that the poor are blessed, and that the Gentile or the gentle will inherit the kingdom, all became incarnate for me in Adam. And he says elsewhere, Adam in some mysterious way had become an image of the living Christ for me, just as Jesus, when he lived on earth, was a friend, teacher, and guide for his disciples. I share that because it's one of the gifts Raj has given me. Like, he's taught me so much. But I also share that as a reminder for all of us because, again, you want to be close to Jesus? Bring these, like, profound needs into your proximity and experience Matthew 25 for yourself like Henry did in a real way at the end of his life. And it's an, another reminder to relieve some pressure tonight. Being neighborly isn't about helping everyone with every need or solving all the world's problems. He was serving one person. One person. He was a part of a bigger puzzle. He didn't serve the whole home. There were other like-minded servants serving each other person in that home, right? There's a void somewhere that you were created to fill, right? There's a, a part you have to play. I would dare say you have a responsibility to play based on proximity and ability. But to do that, we can't allow ourselves to walk in ethics in abstract. We can't allow ourselves to become numbed to suffering. To quote Mr. Rogers again, he once said, a high school student wrote to ask, what was the greatest event in human or excuse me, not human history, American history. He replied, I can't say. However, I suspect that like so many great events, it was something very simple and very quiet with little or no fanfare. The really important great things are never center stage of life's dramas. They're always in the wings. That's why it's so essential for us to be mindful of the humble and the deep rather than the flashy and the superficial. You know, speaks, he's speaking here to moments in American history, but, but I also think of like early church history because we often as the church, like we long for the great move of the early church that we see in, its, in the history of Acts, right? But we want the flashy miracles. We want the move of God. And that's all well and good. But maybe what's missing is the early church got moving. It wasn't ethics and abstract. They took heed and humbly got to the command of go and do likewise. What am I talking about? Well, the Emperor Julian was an actual Roman emperor not long after Christ walked the soil of Roman soil, of the Roman Empire. <laughs> and Christianity at the time was growing while paganism was on the decline. And we have Emperor Julian lamenting and venting on record about the situation. And he says, the religion of the Greeks does not prosper. Why do we not observe how the charity of Christians to strangers has done the most advance to their cause? 
It's disgraceful that these Christians support our poor in addition to their own, while everyone is able to see our own people lack aid from us. It's crazy that we have that to read. But the politics in Rome had the Greeks taking care of the Greeks, the Romans taking care of the Romans, what Emperor Julian calls our people. It's par for the course with politics. And that's all well and good, right? Governments are called to serve and protect their people, ideally with values and, and they do it humanely, but that's the government's role, whether it's Rome or America. But as a pastor, I'm telling you the church bears a different responsibility and a different calling. We're called and commanded to love our neighbor and then Jesus elevates that definition. And it bears repeating in an election year that our hope, that our hope for revival, that our hope for a move of God in our country, it's, it doesn't rely on a, a candidate's election. It's not going to come from Capitol Hill. It's going to come from a spirit-filled church loving God and loving our neighbor. And if politics keep us from loving our neighbor who votes or believes different than us, or, or if it keeps us from showing mercy to those in need where we have the proximity and ability to help them, then we've lost the plot. Again, we see that the early church was exploding because they were supporting, in the emperor's own words, our poor in addition to their own. Politics, culture was operating according to us and them or us versus them. Meanwhile, Christians were showing the love of Christ for everybody. <laughs> their community, strangers, anybody in need, it was us for them. Because really, ultimately, again, you get down to it, there's one us. There's only us. This global neighborhood of humanity desperately in need of a savior. And what was causing the explosive growth of the early church? Being a good neighbor to strangers. What was grabbing the attention of emperors and, and, and the, the government? Being neighborly. Based on nothing but common humanity, human dignity in the Imago Dei. Seeing a need and meeting it. And if I could have the worship team come up, one last quote from Mr. Rogers. He would have been a fan of the early church. Because to, fum, to come full circle, he once said, we live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. You know, Philippians 2 is such a, a powerful passage of Scripture because it talks about how Jesus sees the need and he responds by giving his life. Like, he's the hero. He didn't just put a piece in the puzzle. He solved it. He saved the puzzle. Right, but there's still, while he's the hero, Christians, his followers, we should be moved with the same compassion. We can still be heroic, <laughs> have a role in the proverbial puzzle. I love Proverbs 3.27 in the message version. It reads, never walk away from someone who deserves help. Your hand is God's hand for that person. Combine that with the truth of Matthew 25, and you got like this beautiful collision. Where like when you're serving the need you're in the presence of Jesus, and, and when you're serving the need, your hand is like God's hand for that person. Just this beautiful picture. But we got to be God's hand and show the mercy. We can't, like a hand that's fallen asleep, be numbed to what's needed around us. May we go and do likewise. Not practicing ethics in abstract, but seeing and responding. Seeing needs and responding. Not asking and assessing, well, who is my neighbor? But replying to the call of so many all around us, every, who will be my neighbor? Whether it's the kid alone at the lunch table, <laughs> the person at the corner with the cardboard sign, or those people that don't vote like us, worship like us, talk like us, look like us, we're still called to love them. And eventually we come to realize, again, there is no us versus them as much as our culture wants to tell us, pit us against each other. There's humanity. We all need Jesus. And again, luckily, he's already 
<laughs> the cross happened. It ain't changing. That door's held open. We're justified before God through faith in Jesus. But I, I was just reflecting as I was praying earlier this afternoon, right here, that when Jesus was crucified, often the Romans already had the vertical beam set up in place. And what you were in fact carrying was that horizontal beam. How many of you know Simon of Cyrene stepped in to, to carry that for Christ at one moment? So the vertical beam, right, justification before God, it's in place. It ain't moving. Jesus has done that work. But there's this horizontal work in our world when we look around that we're called to carry. And God, I pray that we would pick that up, that we pick it up tonight and moving forward. Not like we're going to just log off, walk out, and forget, Lord God, but I pray that, that we would look around and, and you would give us your eyes, Jesus. Think of like you were in a, in a massive crowd and you saw Zacchaeus in the tree and you responded. We're in this massive crowd and this woman just brushed your garment. You felt it and you responded. You were before the high priest and you, you looked across the crowd and saw Peter. And then you, you carried that cross. But again, there was that moment where Simon stepped in to, to carry it himself. And God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that as Philippians 2 said, you saw the need, you responded. You didn't count uh, uh, your, your role in heaven as, as divine privilege, but you humbled yourself even to death on a cross to save us. And God, I pray that you would give us that same compassion that can see a need from afar and act on it. Because we see from the early church, that's, that's what really gets the ball moving. That when we get moving, you move with us, God. So I pray, God, that you would give us your, your eyes, your ears, <laughs> help us to see as you do. This week and every week, help us to cling to the truth that we're made right. Don't have to earn it, don't have to strive for it. We simply get to respond. The love we've received, we can freely give. And God, I pray, God, that you would stir up compassion, where there's anxiety, where there's this sense of despair and hopelessness, God, that you would remove that. Make us vessels of your hope. Make us vessels of your love. Make us vessels of your reconciliation. So God, I pray, God, as, as we've been hands in the, or excuse me, clay in the hands of the potter tonight, simply saying, do what you will. God, as we close in worship, make us that vessel that can be filled with the Spirit and, and be that vessel of hope, be that vessel of mercy, be that vessel of, of love this weekend moving forward in Jesus' name.